0: This episode is hosted by Jody Mon Companies. Check out the show notes to follow him on Twitter.
1: Uh, hi, Eric. Welcome to do Software Engineering Daily. Great to be here. So we are in Open Source Summit North America 2023, hosted in a beautiful building with amazing views. So we will talk about what you discussed uh in, in the talk you gave uh, yesterday uh here in open source summit later but i want to go through a bit your career and the interests that have motivated your career professionally and uh, in in research and university um and i would summarize it that i mean i would summarize you professionally as an expert in highly scalable distributed systems i'm i'm no i'm miss i'm let, leaving a lot Outside of that definition, but for the purpose of this conversation, there are two things that two insights, two areas of computer science and and, and systems that you are actually really renowned for. Uh, one is CAP theorem, we will move on to that in a minute. But another one is clustering machines. So what what someone like me doesn't really know is what was so insightful about proposing horizontal scaling and adding more machines and 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 managing the mess that that. Can become rather than you know powering the internet and in this case because you were in the in the search business back in the day uh, with a more powerful mainframe or a more powerful just uh, one process machine. What was what was the insight there?
0: Well, there's a, a few there. So there had been a little bit of use of clusters for a few things, but what struck me is that when the internet and really I mean the web arrived it was clear that services for the web were going to need to be very large scale. Like, if you think back in that era, this is mid to late 90s, you know, the biggest company was maybe 300,000 employees, Mm. right? And the biggest system you'd have to worry about is something like that, with a few exceptions, like the airline ticketing system is famously giant and complicated and did run on mainframes historically. But also all those systems and all the banking systems as well, They were turned off every night, like literally used to be you couldn't go to the ATM between something like midnight and 3 a.m. or 5 a.m. because the bank's computers were being used for accounting for the day's activities. Mm. All right. So it's a very different view now where you expect 24 by 7 availability. and. That's the big factor. The other big factor is just the sheer scale, as I said. Once you get to millions of users or billions of users now, like there's many applications like Gmail that have billions of users with multiple B. And so those, there is no computer big enough to handle that. The only way to approach that scale is with lots of independent pieces. And when you have that many pieces, it's also true you're going to have a high failure rate. Even one in a million means you have problems every day. And so the clustering approach was really first about availability and how do you make the service available even if the components are not completely reliable, and second about scalability. And a third one which people don't think much about, but it's important, it's incremental scalability, meaning if I have this much load today and then I do some marketing and my load goes up the next day, what if my big computer's not big enough? (laughs) right? How do I add capacity? And the beautiful thing about clusters is you add capacity by adding machines, Mm. right? And that incremental deliver on demand scalability is a huge part of of what is now cloud computing because cloud computing is the same idea. You can add capacity, but now you can do it with a GUI and not with actually installing machines in a rack. So it's virtual machine elasticity is a whole lot nicer than physical machine elasticity, but wow. even even physical machine elasticity was an important asset to have for incremental scalability. I guess I guess the size of the data centers
1: compared to the ones today are, were were minor, right? Were Absolutely very small, tiny. Right? Yeah. Okay. Absolutely tiny. So then, th- let's move on to CAP theorem. Then, so this is the the theoretical part of this, right? I guess this is the actual more inside, less hands-on although it has a lot of implications that we will see in a minute, but uh, we'll talk about it in a minute. But uh, it is basically the representation of what you just said, right? That you can opt... Well, I'll let you explain, but you you can optimize for either availability or consistency, but not both, in a distributed system, right? Because you need to take for granted that there will be faulty machines or there will be uh, um, faults in the system. And then those two... Are trade offs, and you cannot have both uh, consistency and availability. Could you probably explain the, the theorem much better than I did?
0: Yeah, I'll start with a little bit of insight, which is the systems we were building at Berkeley and later at Inc. to me were large scale distributed systems, both the search engine and the way it worked, and later the kind of CDNs, the proxy networks that were kind of overlay networks. Mm-hmm. Uh, now they're called CDNs, but yeah, it was- there was a variety of names for them before that. Uh, both of those are, are distributed systems in which availability is much more important than consistency. And so we made choices in favor of availability, um, forfeiting some consistency. And I was quite clear in my mind that those choices were fundamental. Uh, and one day in lecture, I was getting ready to teach on this material. and I'm like, I think that we can just prove that this is true. and I. I did a kind of proof in my head and gave it in lecture the next day. This was in nineteen ninety eight um, and it was a great lecture it went out, went over really well and and in fact that that was the first presentation of the cap theorem. so in summary, the theorem is basically you can only have two of the three properties you want, which are consistency, which I mean you can write and everyone sees the rights availability, which means that uh you can continue to do writes, not just reads, all the time. And partition tolerance, which means in, if you, your system gets partitioned, you'd like to be able to have those other two properties anyway. And you pretty much prove that you can't have all three if you think about it this way, which is, if I have a partition and I do a write, the write by definition goes to one side, mm-hmm. which means the other side isn't gonna see that update. So you could either turn the other side down, in which case it'll be consistent, but not available, or you can leave it up, in which case it's inconsistent, but available. And me in particular, we basically ended up building essentially a database that in some ways is a maybe the first NoSQL database. Well, we didn't call it that, but it was, it's not that it didn't have SQL, it's that it was a little bit more optimized for availability than for consistency. And when I talked about LinkedIn database, which I did at SIGMOD, which is a big database conference in 1997, a lot of people were a little dismissive of the fact that it didn't have consistency, and in in, you know, that's the C in acid, and so it, it was a, you're on risky ground to say that you don't need consistency. <laughs> Especially um, at a database conference, right? At a database conference. At, at that point and in time. I wasn't actually saying you didn't need it. I was just saying there are systems where availability is more important and you can't have both. But at SIGMOD, I didn't have quite the clean formulation yeah. yet in my head. But by 98, I did, and certainly I presented it first publicly in about 2000. And uh, it, it's, at that point, it was mostly to try to get people to understand, you actually do have to make this choice, right? Because So many people told me, oh, I have consistency and availability, and I'd say, oh, because I'm doing snapshots. And I'm like, well, if you're doing a snapshot, by definition, it's not consistent because mm-hmm. it's a slightly old version and you're missing some recent updates. And like, oh, but I can do active, active repair. And like, that's still not actually consistent. <laughs> so it is, and by the way, you can't do active, active repair if you have a partition. You can what? You can't do kinds of database backup repairs if those two sides are partitioned. So, anyway, then... so I was right on that. And eventually, I think this led to the NoSQL movement, which I didn't name or have that much to do with, but it's kind of like it was permission in some sense to mm-hmm. look at all of these. More interesting options around availability. Exactly. So then, in general, distributed
1: systems became popular, powered the web, and and um, and the the you know what we understand is the general availability of all the services that run our lives, basically, and therefore CAP theorem become really really relevant. I mean, it was at the beginning, but it become pervasive in every way because everything is run ran through a through software and. Most software nowadays is a distributed system that is highly available and so forth. So, then 12 years down the line, you published this article, really interesting, long form in InfoQ, in which you collected a bit of the, um, well, again, insights, nuances, and feedback from the community, let's say, uh, from 12 years of application of uh, CapTheorem uh, across the board uh, from many different players. And you had a lot to say about that, about misunderstandings, for one, but also like the whole degree of applications of of the decisions that you can take between optimizing for one
0: or for the other, for availability, for consistency. It's not binary at all, right? Yeah, I wrote that paper for a few reasons. The main reason is, uh, again, as you said, nuance. all the variations of the ways you can get mixed partially, Partial availability, partial consistency, how you can trade them off, you know, trade them off for different users, for different operations, uh, lots of lots of options there. And frankly, in 2000, that people weren't ready to have that discussion, right? They're still discussing whether you have to give up consistency at all. Mm. And in fact, honestly, one of the reasons I wrote the paper is because people would tell me that... Um, Cap theorem is is too simple. Doesn't cover all this nuance. I'm like, well, go look at the original presentation. It actually says it's a spectrum, and you can make these trade-offs. But no one remembers that because it was, the focus was on the binary part. Yeah. Right. So the 10 years later paper is like, no, it really is a spectrum, and you have lots of options. And and. The strategies you can use to recover from partitions, which also hadn't been discussed much. what catches your attention
1: with cap theorem is the binary, the headline, right? It's like, oh, it's it's this, say, or B, right? in this right. case, C or A. Uh, but uh, but yeah, obviously, there's a paper, there's a research, there's a, an explanation, a further one that explains all of this. That so that's what you go about explaining in the article. Do you have any updates to it now that it's 23 or four years? When did you say you formulized Publicly it? Probably presented in 2000. Okay, so 24, 23 years after that. Uh,
0: you consider that the InfoQ article is still up to date, and you, you stand by it? I still stand by it as the best paper on the cap theorem. Uh, and it's not like, I think there's still a lot of nuance in there. If you reread it today, it looks pretty good. But there are better techniques available today Um, Joe Hellerstein's done some nice work showing basically that if you build systems that are monotonic, meaning values only go in one direction, then it's easy to make systems that are, uh, highly available and can have simple consistency, eventual consistency. Um, but that's a constraint on what you build, but it's still pretty powerful. And there's also CRDTs, which I did talk about in 10 years ago. What are those? Um, <laughs> I've got to have a hard time remembering. Them. <laughs> they are Conflict-Free Replicated Data Type. Conflict-Free Replicated Data Type. Mm, that's
1: interesting. Okay, so so then you're at Google. By the way, so I can see your motivation and anyone's motivation to come up with Solutions for such complex problems because if anything is common to any distributed system is is that it's incredibly complicated and uh, There's high entropy and so forth So I can see the motivation of someone like you and again anyone involved in that industry because there's Well genuine interest and professional interest and also an economic one, right? You you were the leader of a company that went public and, and so forth, but I struggle more to understand your motivation as a, as a lecturer. I mean, again, there's a there's a curiosity. Universities for that, right? To expand the knowledge about, but there's no such um, there's, there's there's not such a big carrot after that. Mm-hmm. So, what takes an a lecturer in computer science in Ber- in, in Berkeley to go after such uh, endeavours in this case?
0: Well, I love Berkeley, and I loved my twenty. 20- almost 25 years there. Uh, Actually, I'm still there as emeritus, but I joined pretty young. I was 26 when I started as faculty. In fact, I had grad students that were older than me occasionally. Uh, And this is right as the web was starting. And so I was, you know, I wanted to make a difference. I wanted to have impact. I do think Reacher's is one avenue to do that, and I've done a lot of work at Berkeley that we won't even get to today on totally different topics. Um, In the moment we were in of seeing the rise of the web, I'm like, it's going to need giant scale services. The only way to build them is clusters, and I feel like we're uniquely positioned to go solve that. And the reason we're doing a search engine, honestly, was because the search engine we estimated correctly would be the first service that really needed large scale. In fact, the other engines of the time were, in fact, all built on single large machines, the most famous being AltaVista, where it was really big deck machines as a way to show off the power of those machines. Wow. But InfoSeq was on big Sun, UltraSpark 10,000s, I believe, also big machines. Wow. So now it's common that all cloud services and Internet engines run on clusters, but I think to me was the only one at the time.
1: Nice. So then eventually uh you join google um and uh, you get involved in several initiatives in there that google's famed for many things but from a software engineering perspective is that their tooling is your tooling of the company is really good that they are particularly secretive about it for good reasons when it's when something is good but you 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 sort of get involved in what becomes eventually kubernetes and such a project that has become well, Probably the most successful in cloud-native land and in distributed systems. Probably I need to check that statement, but I I would back it. So how did that you go about that? What what, what another insight that you had in this sense? Why did you see that the exploring the avenue of open sourcing an internal tool of Google, because uh, it's famously known that Kubernetes is inspired by Borg. Yeah. Uh, was the way to go. And did you
0: foresee the success of Kubernetes? That's a great question. So you you can never really foresee this kind of success. You can hope, and certainly I was hopeful, but foresee would be a strong statement. But I can say, again, like with the rise of the web, I could see the time was right. And what I mean by that is we had learned a lot from Borg, you couldn't really open source Borg, it, it's a beast with lots of legacy baggage that people wouldn't actually want to use, honestly. I mean, it works great for Google, we still use it for a variety of reasons. But the ideas that are in Borg were certainly strong, and we'd been using what I'll loosely call containers for a long time, even by the time of the start of Kubernetes, which for me started around 2013. Mm-hmm. It, the first public talk was in 2014. The so the first so the things were going on there we we were using containers but we were using containers of linux performance isolation kind meaning that they are not the the tar file that is inside a docker file that's a packaging mechanism yeah they were really the the constraints you put on a process to make sure it stays within its bounds for performance isolation oh, isolation okay All right so most people were actually using vms to do that at the time Google, because it's the same age as VMware, historically hasn't used VMs because they didn't exist when Google Mm -hmm. started. And my my own work in the 90s on large-scale services also didn't use VMs because they didn't exist in the modern sense, at least. It was all based on processes. So Google was really much more like my work where we have processes and each, there's many processes on one machine and it's okay that they don't have security isolation because they're all from the same company, Yeah, right? And we had some other checks in there, but we were using Linux containers as a way to make sure if you run 200 applications on the same machine, they don't tromp on each other too badly. So we were well-versed in how to do that. Yeah. We had a packaging mechanism, which we still use, which is not Docker, but when I saw Docker rising and say, ah, people are liking this container format, they're using it really to decouple applications from infrastructure, which is very similar to how we were using containers inside. Mm-hmm. I said, well, if we just combine Linux containers with Doctor packages. We have a pretty nice combo. Yeah, I just kind of said that's what a container should be, and let's make that happen. And then once people like containers, then you have room for all the the secondary things like orchestration. Yes, but now the problem starts, right? Right. And so we were so very if get, clear. If I get you right, clear. is that
1: you really liked the isolation enough of the sort of like Linux containers that Google was using? But it was missing a bit the dependency packaging, the the library packaging, the need packaging that uh, the Dockerfile provides, and and so forth. And the combination of those was the perfect insight to realize, oh, this is going to explode in a way, or this is going to be uh, at least relevant, and now we need to cater to the orchestration and the scheduling of all this, because it it can become a mess
0: otherwise, right? Well, Docker had done a better job than Google on managing libraries. Like, our general rule was we'll pick We'll tell you which library you can use, and we'll all use the same version, Hmm. which you can kind of do in a very kind of mandatey kind of way, but it's not a great solution. Docker solution, which is allow multiple versions in the same machine, is a much better solution. And they had a great user experience where they just packaged it well. But really, I was looking at it and saying, the decoupling is what I'm after, because I don't really want to see the future of cloud be about having your application, your OS image, and even your database combined on one machine Hmm. is a monolithic thing, right? That's not the future. The future has to be something that's about APIs and services and you shouldn't care about the OS you're on very much and you shouldn't care about what else is on the same machine ideally, right? Then you have a sea of resources that you run your applications on. And we really, we have done a little bit of that with App Engine, because App Engine Hmm. gives you an abstract infrastructure but it was too abstract. You couldn't write all the things you wanted to write. VMs are too concrete and annoying. And Kubernetes is like trying to be the Goldilocks in the middle where we'll give you an abstract infrastructure, but it can run anything, right? It's equally flexible, but much nicer to work on. And that we were able to deliver on that promise. Exactly, yeah. So. You actually added a
1: lot of, not a lot of, I take that back, a few constraints, the new idea of a pod and a few new features, right? But before we move on to that, uh, I'm a huge um, supporter of GitOps for, for many reasons. Professionally, I've worked at Weaveworks, but I, I, see it's a, I, I really like it as, a, as the operating model of the cloud. That's a really ambitious claim, but I, I see, I see and I, it turns out that... Um, Right in this conference, uh, Brendan Burns is uh, one of the co-creators of, of Kubernetes. Has turned out to be for me. He probably has been public about it a while back, but uh, a really strong supporter of GitHub's. Uh He gave a talk about it, and and he considers it in the same lines that I just described, like kind of the operating model of the cloud. Uh, what is I'd like to just to pull your thoughts on that. Um, What's your thought about GitOps
0: in general, and do you see it as a good combination with Kubernetes? It's a great combination with Kubernetes, and I'm a big fan of that direction for lots of reasons. The big one, and you know, the big Googler on this is Brian Grant. He's done, you know, had a lot to say on this topic. But it's really about a few things. It's a good building block, much better building block than something based on, you know, for example, a GUI, right? Which is, you know, kind of derogatory called uh, click ops, right? You have click to ops, click yeah. things to do stuff, that you're, that, that's not bad. So I'm always in favor of enabling automation and GitOps is a clean way to enable automation. Because another thing you're a big fan of is declarative systems, right? I am. I guess. I
1: guess it's a consequence of managing a lot of distributed systems, right? But someone like me that comes a bit from the imperative world, and I think this is common across many areas of software engineering, of the software engineering universe is that uh, it does it does. I think many many programmers are more more used to uh, an imperative way of talking to a machine, but it turns out that you, when you when you work with distributed systems, it, it's way better to actually declare a target state, a, a desired state, and let the system reproduce it, which is what Kubernetes, among others excels at but it's again it feels a bit like i'll mention ai it's not ai but it feels like something is running this for me and uh, i'm not sure if i trust it and the only thing i need to check is the definition of the system in a declared a statement and uh, it feels awkward again for someone yeah. that comes from an imperative world in which i tell the machine each one of the steps it has to take in order to achieve something which i have very clear in my mind know, it's I, I i describe that thing and
0: you take it from there Yeah, it's worth talking about that philosophically a bit, but it's certainly a core of Kubernetes. I think one of the primary philosophical points of Kubernetes is you declare your intent and we reconcile the real world to match that intent as best we can. And the reason I think that's the right way to think about it is in a distributed system, unlike controlling your laptop or desktop, you really have actions going on that or that you didn't initiate, <laughs> yeah. right? The most obvious one is machines fail, <laughs> right? And so actions happen. We don't know if they were supposed to happen or not supposed to happen, right? So at some basic level, assist, any kind of automated systems has to understand the difference between the intended state and the current state, yeah. right? And if you're doing stuff imperatively on a system you control that doesn't fail, those two always match. You don't have to think about it. Right, but in the presence of failure or other random changes, they can differ. In which case, I really need to know is there one less machine today because that's the way you want it, or because something happened and you would really like it to be back where it was? Yeah, and without a declarative intent, you can't tell the difference. Yeah, so that's I think pretty fundamental to eventual consistency and in general to dealing with partial failure. Exactly, yeah, it's a beauty of.
1: Permanent reconciliation, right? And uh, and yeah, and, and uh, having a system always striving to match uh, end state, production state, whatever it might be, with the declared state. Yeah. So so then in the successor of um, so yeah, let's talk about the sort of like the ideas, the main ideas that went into um, Kubernetes because it has its constraints and so they're very purposely built in for that reason. It has new features and so forth. So, could you walk us about a, a bit through this, that uh, I think in a talk in 2018, you called it, con- at least the talk was called Continuous Evolution, and mm-hmm. in a way you go through this, um, the build process of applications in,
0: in Kubernetes. Kubernetes has definitely, and it's evolved over time, but was always designed to have a notion that we need to be able to upgrade, serv- upgrade services online And the most obvious part of that is the load balancer, because the load balancer should be up all the time, ideally, and it's the thing that's going to shift traffic onto the new version versus the old version. So it's Mm -hmm. your control point for which version is a particular user seeing. Uh, But we didn't want to solve that in a very prescriptive way. So the way it's solved in Kubernetes is kind of indirect, which is using labels, and so Front end sends traffic to, to pods that have a certain label. You can pick that label, and then conversely, if I add that label to a pod, it will start getting traffic. If I take that label off a pod, it'll stop getting traffic. And that has those are good building blocks. A human you example: uh, you're debugging something, mm-hmm. and you know what you really want to do is not have it get any more traffic, but you don't really want to take the pod down because you want to look at its state. So you just take the label off. It stops getting new traffic, but it's still alive, and you can still interact with it. It's just not part of the, thing, the live service anymore, right? And that, that just gives you some freedom for debugging. It also means you can have whatever load balancing policy you want that's separate. Right? You can have you know, whatever mechs you want for deciding how many uh, pods to have for auto-scaling. Right? The frequency with which you add newly labeled pods is totally up to you. This is just the most basic mechanism of how does a load balancer decide who should get traffic? And so that's the general philosophy is try to make these mechanisms simple and, again, eventually consistent, right? If you put a label on something, you won't instantly get traffic. It has to be discovered. And likewise, you take the label off, it might still get traffic for a little bit before it stops. But that's good enough. And, in fact, it's the best you can do.
1: So... I guess another consequence of being exposed to uh distributed systems at this scale is something that you and I spoke about just before this conversation started is about how, how big of a how interdependent and complex and transitive everything in software is it has always been since the 50s this way uh software consumes other pieces of software statically dynamically Uh, But it it has just exploded exponentially in the last, I don't know, 20 years since distributed systems have become, again, pervasive, everything uh, powering the world and so forth. So I guess that, I mean, it sounds logical to me, but again, you were pioneering this in a a way with some others that, well, that interconnected supply chain and uh, dependency chain, I'd like to make this difference, I can't remember who to attribute this, but uh, just supply chain would be the, the, the connection between vendors and clients of software. And there's a liability and a contract there, but uh, what I'm trying to describe or, or the person that coined this term of uh, dependencies chain would be the the same chain, but of open source software in which such contracts do not exist, right? I consume to my, with my own pro- um, responsibility, uh, open source packages that I see out there in the world or uh, um, managed by institutions and so forth. So this this is definitely, and this became the the the, the risks associated associated to such a supply chain and dependency chain became patent with solar winds and others. So you you before that became really interested in this already, right? So how did that come about, and what were your first thoughts on the risks of such an interconnected uh, supply chain and, and dependency chain?
0: Yeah, so that's interesting history too. So I would say first. What well, consequence of Kubernetes, which then led to, by the way, the CNCF, because we needed a place to put the Kubernetes trademark, so that's where CNCF came from, uh, that led to you know, hundreds now, more than a thousand projects that basically are all in this space. And that's actually, I think, exactly what you want. You want a, a thousand flowers blooming, so to speak, yes, because that's a vibrant ecosystem. And some of those ideas will be terrible, but some of them will be fantastic. And we'll let people figure out which are which over time but it does mean that kubernetes is particularly complicated right it's got all the problems you have of a distributed system but it's also got problems of many plausible components many of which that are partially done or incomplete or incompatible and so working in that space is more complicated than it should be now the good news is the core at least has gotten relatively stable which we predicted would happen, but it took a while. And now the kind of the mess is kind of at the fringes, and the fringe just gets wider over time as, as more things get sorted out. That, it's that, a complicated space.
1: That, by the way, let me just inter- interject. So CNC, the, the CNCF events, so KubeCon and Cloud Native Con, are increasing popularity. If that's a proxy to the success of Kubernetes, I think so. It, the, the last data point was Kubernetes, uh, KubeCon, CloudNativeCon in Amsterdam a few months ago, a month ago and it sold out, and there was a thousand uh, a, a waiting list of thousands big. Um, but yeah, the everyone agrees that for the last few Kubecons, cloud-native cons, Kubernetes has, has become boring, quote-unquote boring, because it's stable, and the mess and the interesting bits might
0: come from the ecosystem, so you're absolutely And right. That's good, actually. Yes. Because <laughs> the early days of Kubernetes were, were not that pleasant to work on, right? We have core stuff changing every quarter, which means every consumer had to do a lot of work just to stay current, right? So the stability is a good thing. Uh, we were we used to worry about the how do we get the mundane stuff done, and I'm not sure we ever solved other than just getting it right enough that it's stable and, and works well enough. But around 2018, I was looking at you know how even then successful Kubernetes was. But I started to worry about all the dependencies, which at that time was like twelve hundred. I think we've got it. We for a while got it down to seven hundred. I don't know what it's at now, but there's you know more than a thousand dependencies in twenty eighteen, into all kinds of stuff that I don't think is all that trustworthy. Because again, people just include whatever they want. It gets checked in. It's working, but you know if you're depending on stuff that's not trustworthy and doesn't have test cases, like that's just you're asking to be burnt by that stuff. And that stuff might be, again, tra- have a de- transitive dependency to another stuff that you don't know
1: anything yeah. about and, and so and so forth.
0: Yeah. M- most of those 1,200 dependencies are indirect dependencies. And so it, I was starting to go through, how, how do we sort this out? And we did a few steps, like we did some work to reduce the number of dependencies, at least, at least try to call ones that didn't make any sense. But again, most packages on the internet have one maintainer. I'm sorry, not most, uh, it's a kind of a plurality argument. 30% have one maintainer, that's the biggest single group. Uh, so you're trusting that one person who you may or may not have the real identity of, they could be a nation state, we have no idea. Uh, and so it's, it was fundamentally risky and I started thinking about what are we gonna do about this problem? And so I worked with Linux Foundation and Microsoft to start OpenSSF to say well, this is a supply chain problem is going to be serious. We're at risk here. There'd been tiny little attacks, like mostly substitutions of bad packages, credit card stealing, crypto mining, stuff like that. But yeah, I could see the same techniques would work on a larger scale. Uh, and so we started it right before the pandemic hit, <laughs> which is a terrible time to start anything. Uh, so then it didn't go all of that well the first year, because even the groups that wanted to participate became risk averse when the pandemic started, and rightfully so. But then of course, solar winds hit and also some open source versions of those things and colonial pipeline. And suddenly people are like, Oh, I I even in a pandemic, I still care about this stuff. And then so that kind of rebooted OpenSSF with a much broader support and funding. And that led, of course, to the uh in cybersecurity order, and we played a fairly big role in that because we were the only voice that was kind of ready to talk about it because we'd been thinking about it for several years. And so now it's about half my time is spent on open source security.
1: So exactly. So this leads actually to the last bit of the conversation that I wanted to have is like since you've been fundamental in... Um, the creation and spawning of the cloud native ecosystem through Kubernetes and the CNCF and all that we've just talked about very briefly of OpenSSF, which is another thriving project. It's not in the same way as Kubernetes because it's not a platform for anything, but it's a platform for, if anything, collaboration between great stakeholders, big stakeholders, but also the individual contributor. And uh, OpenSSF Day took part. Yes, t- took place here yesterday and it was a massive success. But yeah, I can see how you would start to care about not only software supply chain, but in general collaboration and open source in 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 general at a at a high level, right? And for that you've you've I don't know if you coined a term, but you, you the the way you're you're framing your interest in this huge, vast space
0: is curation, right? well one of the problems we have to solve and there are many you know, a lot of the problems are technical they're like tooling like how do you sign things how do you generate fit a software bill materials or SBOm? there's a bunch of technical problems and we'll make progress on those but the one i talked about last year's open source north america which was in austin i introduced the term curation and what i mean by it is it's the layer of accountability that goes between open source and the kind of top level mandates that are coming towards software in general. So for example, if we're gonna use open source in our electrical grid or our telecom systems, which we do, Mm -hmm. it better be trustworthy. How do we make it trustworthy? Uh, And we can think of that as from the government view, not just US government, all governments really are like, oh, I wanna put some rules on this stuff so that it behaves well. But you look at how open source is delivered, and it literally says, as is. So in some sense, you talked about dependency graphs not having a contract. It's actually worse than that. It has a contract, and the contract says, as is, you're on your own. Fix the vulnerabilities yourself. Right? That's literally what the contract is today. So that doesn't work. Those two modes, top-down mandates and bottom-up as is, are incompatible. Yes. And I don't want that to be an existential threat to open source, Okay. I think at least in some countries, is kind of on the table because they don't understand it. Correct that—that that is exceptionally
1: true for the European Union. In my view, of the CRA drafting
0: for now. So, in order to prevent some bad legislation, I think it's important to create mechanisms that solve the problem. And curation is really a generalization of idea we've seen before, which is. The yeah. classic example is Red Hat. If you buy Red Hat Linux, they will do security patching for the packages that are included in their distribution. Right? So those are supported packages, and you actually pay them money for that. So I would call that curated packages. The, Red Hat does a great job. The problem is they, don't, they stop at the Linux distro layer, mm. and there's all these things you get from PyPy or Maven or MPM that are not supported that way, and that are actually probably more risky in general for lots of reasons, because they have less eyeballs on them. And those things need to be curated too. Yeah. So how do we deliver software where someone, doesn't have to be the maintainer, is willing to say, I will offer to patch this stuff for money. It's not a free service. And the money's there to pay for it, by the way. That's not a problem either. right? It's already clear that people are paying vendors to give them supported software. Yeah. So this is not a new thing. But the point is, we need to make it easier for curators to interoperate with open source and, and with maintainers in a mutually productive way. right? Ideally, a curator, which could be the maintainer, by the way, it's, it's a role. So anyone could play this role. Mm-hmm. But the curator's role is accountability for some packages and promising to fix them quickly and understanding what their dependencies are and, and being on the lookout for when the dependencies might be at risk. Um, the maintainer's role in this, if they're not the curator, is really to, you know, work with the maintainer to accept patches upstream. Uh, we then the question is how to make that as easy as possible. My talk yesterday was really about the need for automation for building and testing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because if we had more of that, then it'd be easier for third parties, even just to pay for tests and builds. Right now, it, it kind of even if they did some testing on their own. The maintainer would typically have to redo that testing before they understand if this is a good patch or not, and I'd like to take that work and that cost off of the maintainers, right? There's no reason maintainers should be paying for testing and builds for critical software. So I'm hoping to create mechanisms where other people can pay for it, Google included. We already pay for fuzzing. Fuzzing for Kubernetes, right? We fuzz all kinds of things. Yeah, true. And you, you, you provide the machines for that to
1: be free for the maintainers of each one of the projects, right? Yeah, so.
0: now it's, it's we only fuzz for free what well, we could view is critical open source, but it is already above a thousand packages. And fuzzing is a very expensive kind of oh, testing. Yeah. So that we don't publish the numbers on that, but it's a it's a non trivial cost. Right. But I think that can be generalized to if, if you stuff. told us how to run unit tests, integration tests, I think we would certainly be able we'd be willing to pay for them sometimes, but more importantly, we could make it such that other people uh, could pay for it that care. Like if you're a a vendor for a government that wants some accountability, then you should be running those tests on a regular basis, right? And the maintainer should not be paying for those tests, right? That's the curator's problem.
1: We can finish with this speculation because it was news, I think, this morning or yesterday, which you might not even be aware of. I mean, I'm sure you are, but uh, I think Google announced that they uh, just launched, probably today, or at least announced, they're they're launching a... um, co-completion, code suggestion AI-powered uh, tool. So for those of you familiar with Co-Pilot or Type 9 or others, and that it, whether that product or others, I, I think, this is again a speculation, might reduce the cost of uh, AI, uh, apologies, of testing. If we apply AI to test unit test creation, integration test creation, and other tests, that might actually reduce the cost for the independent maintainer to create a test suite that is that will uh, gr- grant uh, their software a bit more of security and, and quality,
0: I think. Yeah, I am certainly hopeful that large language models will help us generate more test cases automatically and that combined with more automated ways to run those tests. Yeah. Again, like the state of the art is a README file that you can, a human can read and figure it out. And maybe we'd have the LLM read the README file and generate a VM that'll run the test. That's actually a good thing to try. But the right answer is something more declarative. Like if you give me a declarative statement of how to build and test your package, then we can automate that. And and by the way, it's not just Google. I think other clouds would be happy to run yeah. these services too, for all the same reasons. Yeah, true.
1: And I wish anyway that uh, curation becomes a thing and that uh, these curators become institutionalized in the sense that they become a reality, properly funded, and that we can see them sprouting uh, everywhere, because the especially, again, the dependency chain the one that connects uh uh users of open source software and maintainers is the one that is more brittle and more more exposed to this risk risks coming from tops down uh regulation that is not so aware of how this chain works and the humans and communities powering it underneath. Well that I think we can conclude. Did do we miss anything from what you <laughs> wanted to touch upon or
0: no, it's just uh, it's nice to be in Vancouver, and I do hope curation takes off. I feel, it's, I feel in some sense it's, it's inevitable because we have to yes. bridge this gap. The top-down mandates are not going to go away. The as-is nature of open source is not going to go away. And if we can navigate that smoothly, it will actually be a, a boon for open source, both in use but also, frankly, I think, in sustainability and funding. Agree. Well, thanks for being on the show, Eric. My pleasure. Thank you.